Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode of This Week in FCPA, the Astros March to the World Series edition, we take a look at two different aspects of conflict of interest and follow Matthew Stevenson's questions, when conflict of interest can get people killed, what is the last mile of finance and how is it achieved, two ex-Credit Suisse bankers are set to testify in the massive Mozambique tuna boat corruption case, the French Anticorruption Agency issues guidelines for travel and entertainment. Were Wells Fargo fraudulent account tactics used by AT&T? We take a look at an article by Jacqueline Jagger on this. Richard Bestrong explains what channel stuff it is, how he used it to make his numbers when he was in business, and why it's accounting fraud. Why is it time for boards to revisit their compliance obligations? We explore that. The Doobie Brothers head this year's nominations for the 2020 inductees into the Hall of Fame. And we conclude by reviewing a five-part podcast series that I posted this week uh, featuring Jay Rosen in a sponsored series by Affiliated Monitor where we explore the ethical culture in a corporation. These and other stories all on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, back again with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 176, the Let's Go to Doral edition. Jay, as the Astros continue their inexorable march to the World Series, and we contemplate going to Doral to play some golf, and maybe see some famous people. Um, we also have the Doobie Brothers nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. More on that later. What are some of the top stories that caught your eye this week? Well, there's a lot of stuff that we have to discuss here. I think uh, with it being Thursday now that we're taping this show, there is a lot to be said about uh, how this administration decides to use uh, hotels for global conferences and conventions. So why don't we jump right into that one? So obviously the announcement today that uh, Trump is bringing the G7 to the his hotel, the Doral uh, Resort, uh, is a huge conflict of interest. Uh, I think by definition this uh, violates the emoluments clause. Uh, Mick Mulvaney tried to claim that, well, he was doing it at cost, but uh, – I guess he hasn't read the Constitution recently because there's nothing in it about uh, being paid and making a profit. So, um, but um, we'll leave the emoluments clause and uh, its repercussions for perhaps another discussion. Because what we wanted to focus on was a couple of 
uh, articles around conflicts of interest. And uh, the first one comes from Jeff Kaplan uh, in his appropriately named Conflict of Interest blog, where he cites to a paper by Sunita Sa of Cornell Business School around conflict of interest disclosure. And her, she posits in her academic paper that uh, while most companies feel that the disclosure of a conflict of interest is in and of itself sufficient, it's really not. Because if you allow senior leadership and management to have a conflict of interest, that communicates to uh, all employees the culture of your company, uh, which obviously uh, is that conflicts of interest uh, are not uh, something to be avoided and certainly uh, leads to uh, evidence of, uh, of lack of business ethics. In a, in a much more disturbing article, Jay, uh, we had from uh, Matthew Stevenson over on his great blog, the uh, Global Anti-Corruption blog, and, and he's a professor at Harvard, and he tends to look at things from a policy perspective. Unlike myself, uh, who uh, I try to write about the nuts and bolts of compliance and compliance-related topics. Jay, you take on things really from the, the Mr. Monitor perspective uh, in your uh, ever-burgeoning writings for Corporate Compliance Insights. But uh, uh, Matthew Stevenson uh, posits, if you don't think conflicts of interest matter, think about the Kurds. And the importance there is that Trump made a decision uh, to abandon the Kurds simply because of the um, business interests he has in Turkey. I don't know whether Erdogan put pressure on him or uh, threatened to close down the Trump Hotel, but uh, even Trump admitted in December 2015 he had a conflict of interest in Turkey because he had a major building there. And that uh, it's pretty clear he made his decision since he did not consult any uh, foreign policy experts and indeed made the decision without uh, telling anyone or even consulting anyone that he was going to order a pullout. That's led to catastrophic uh, consequences, not only for the U.S. military, but uh, slaughter of the Kurds, many of Kurds as Syria uh, invaded. Uh, although a ceasefire has been uh, announced, uh, it's uh, pretty, uh, I, I guess we have to say irony is dead, as the administration announced uh, that through their great work, they've been able to uh, broker a ceasefire on a war that uh, they started or at least green-lighted. So conflicts of interest matter, and the uh, today's announcement of the G7 going to uh, Trump's uh, uh, business hotel, the Doral Resort, is about as clear a conflict of interest as one could have. And this uh, certainly would not be allowed in a corporation, nor should it be, because uh, as I indicated, it's just indicia of a culture of corruption. So um, it's really... Um, Pretty disheartening, Jay, and um, I'm not quite sure uh, where this is going to go forward. So uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, My thoughts are that uh, every day we have a new cycle that feels like two weeks. And, uh, you know, I I would never want to wish for this government not to be working the way it's supposed to work. But my heart goes out to the service men and women who defend our country, and I can't believe the position that they've been put in by being abandoned by their uh, commander-in-chief, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I'm just wondering, when is somebody going to step up that there have been so many people within this administration who have refused to take actions that they know are illegal 
or, you know, offered to uh, step away or get fired rather than do something. And uh, I'm just wondering how much closer we need to get to the fire now. This uh, confrontation between uh, the Turks and the Kurds is horrible. And uh, I would think that if I was somebody who had competing interests to the United States, like a man who's riding a white horse in the snow, now would be the time to strike. So I'm uh, definitely glass half empty on this one. So um, perhaps we can move to some uh, less morose topics, Jay, because we did have some other very interesting articles. Um, I was intrigued by a concept called The Last Mile of Finance. Uh, Could you tell us about that? Yeah, this is really interesting. This brings me back to my days of uh, working in the financial um, printing business and doing data sites for uh, Merrill Corporation. This article comes to us from French Caldwell and the Analyst Syndicate, and he talks about um, back in the old days before technology, if you were getting ready to put together your quarterly finances, what you would have to do is take all your analysts and everyone on the fin team and book out a hotel for two weeks. And if you made a change on page one, you'd have to walk down the hallway and basically make sure that everyone else on the team uh, got that change. Um, In terms of this now, when he talks about the last mile of finance, there is a way now that if you use um, the Warkiever suite, then you make one change, it automatically flows through to the rest of the, uh, the stuff you're working on. So he's basically saying that the last mile of finance is really the most congested part. And if you're able to take these uh, changes and flow them through on your quarterlies and on your annual filings, that what is to stop uh, the rest of your GRC team from using this uh, portfolio of tools to try to uh, bring everyone on the same page and potentially use the AI uh, capabilities of the WorkCuba suite to get everyone connected on that last mile of finance. So I thought it was uh, an interesting story. And uh, like I said, it reminded me of my days back at Merrill. So, Jay, um, the thing that intrigued me about this story was twofold. One was exactly what you detailed. But then also, I think if you talk to any um, uh, senior level compliance practitioner, uh, they will tell you it's execution is where rubber, the rubber meets the road in compliance. And that French's article really speaks to the execution of a, of a best practices compliance program. And the Workiva tool um, uh, allows uh, revisions but documented revisions with an audit trail. So we've got the document, document, document part, and we do have an audit trail part, but it's doing it in a simultaneous manner. And it, it, it struck me that it's a concept that I think uh, we need to think about from the compliance perspective because uh, oftentimes uh, one change may be made in a compliance program or on a focus of a compliance program, but it doesn't get cascaded through the rest of the organization. So that last mile of finance, that last mile of execution, I think if you talk to anyone at Amazon or or a major retailer who delivers product, they say the last mile of delivery is always the most difficult. So uh, that's maybe a concept that we could uh, 
either one or both of us could talk about a little bit in, in compliance and really help to bring some innovative techniques and tactics from other disciplines into the compliance field. <clears throat> Sorry, I was going to say in our never-ending look across the bowl, uh, the globe, I think you have another installment of banks behaving badly. Well, it's really more than banks behaving badly here, Jay. This is uh, was just a, a terrible scandal. This is the uh, Mozambique tuna boat scandal that we've talked about in the past. And in that scandal, um, government officials and other corrupt individuals uh, conspired to uh, defraud the people of Mozambique by uh, expropriating $2 billion in bonds that were going to be raised to build a fleet of tuna boats. Um, uh, frankly, I'm sure Charlie and his brethren are happy that they weren't built, or Charlie the Tuna, for those who don't know what that cultural reference is. Uh, nevertheless, uh, what happened was that um, bribes were paid to allegedly paid to Mozambique officials, and then the money was uh, purloined by um, an individual, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Jean Bustani, a former executive at the shipbuilder Privenest Group. And uh, he claims that it was all um, just a mistake. Uh, someone really didn't understand uh, what was going on? The problem for him and the banker tie is that two former Credit Suisse Group AG bankers will testify uh, in the United States this week, describing their roles in this two billion dollar kickback scam. Andrew Purse, who headed the group's financing global financing group in the bank's London office, and his former assistant Detlina Subova, uh, who uh, will both testify uh, that they were paid bribes of approximately uh, $200 million, I believe, and that um, um, $50 million was paid to government officials uh, in Mozambique, and uh, $12 million was paid to co-conspirators at Primanest. So uh, a huge scandal, a huge corruption case. It's going to be interesting to see if, um, if the government can get a, a conviction out of this, and if they can, I think it's a really very positive sign of uh, the U.S. going after corruption uh, wherever they find it uh, with uh, whatever laws they can. So uh, next up, we've got an article that comes to us from J.D. Supra uh, taking taking a look at the French anti-corruption law, which is known as Sapin Deux, and it comes to us from a team of attorneys at Whiten Case. I'm going to take a shot at these names, Ludovic Malgrain, Jean-Pierre Pica, and Jean-Louis Salah. So uh, basically, the French Anti-Corruption Agency, which is known by the acronym AFA, has published a draft on guide on gifts and invitation policies. So basically, this is a soft law, and they've got it out right now to get comments back from people in the ethics and the compliance community. And this draft guide explains how existing law gifts and hospitality practices in the corporate world by identifying the types of conduct such policies should aim to prevent. So it's a lot of the same things that we look at here in the States on terms of uh, gifts, travel, and entertainment. And uh, effectively, they would like this to be implemented with eyes on the need to set tone from the top, which we talk about a lot, and also training managers and other employees on the policy 
to create awareness. So when they are in a situation where they may be taking a vendor to dinner or they might be doing something else, that they really understand that how these policies should affect the way they conduct business, especially in a sales perspective. So it's a, it's an interesting article and we do link to it in the show notes. Um, it looks like next up now, uh, I've got the article, which is a dynamo from um, our colleague, Jacqueline Jager over at Compliance Week. And this title of the article is AT&T may be the next Wells Fargo, and it doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. So this all uh, comes to, I guess, uh, rears its ugly head based on a securities class action complaint in AT&T slash DirecTV now securities litigation. And uh, AT&T, rather, um, DirecTV now was a streaming service that uh, DirecTV introduced and ATT rolled out with it. And uh, basically, the product was not very successful. And there seems to be um, a lot of uh, direction coming from upper management about how they should push this piece of technology and how they would sign people up unbeknownst to them. And then three months later, when the trial was over, take it away. Uh, Jacqueline goes in and she takes a look at sections of the AT&T Code of Conduct and policies and procedures and talks about uh, how they should, uh, you know, be an ethical company. And a lot of times uh, these things are very aspirational, but they don't really work out in the wash. And uh, she goes on to detail three specific uh, schemes about how people were being um, given this services without, uh, you know, even signing up for them. So it's uh, really does look like Wells Fargo Redux. Uh, Tom, what, what kind of points did you want to pull out of this? So uh, first of all, it was a great piece by Jacqueline. Um, if um, if this all is is correct, uh, AT and T could could literally be in a world of hurt. And um, this is uh, uh, in allegations in a lawsuit, so it's just allegations. Um, but it's uh, a clear disconnect, Jay, between what top management says and what top management has in place and the facts on the ground. And uh, I gave a speech yesterday uh, where I talked about um, culture must connect those two things. And you must have a connection with what your leaders are saying with what is actually happening on the ground. And that, that is a huge indicia of culture. And right now, Wells Fargo is the best example of a disconnect in that uh, around culture. Uh, when uh, John Stump, the former CEO, uh, sat up before Congress and said, well, this is just a few bad actors. Uh, and we fired 5,000 people for, for violating our policy. When it, they had been uh, whistleblower complaints literally for years uh, about this, uh, and um, it had been uh, hidden from the uh, board of directors. So uh, I think it's one we're going to have to follow, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, every time you think, Jay, or at least every time I think uh, there can't be a bigger scandal, well, there's the next bigger scandal. So um, I, I guess that's what keeps us on the Internet, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, – an appropriate story from our colleague uh, Richard Bestrong. This comes to us 
from the FCPA blog, and it's called That's No Shortcut, It's Accounting Fraud. Uh, why don't you let us know what Richard has to say about channel stuffing? So uh, it was really interesting. Richard talked about uh, his uh, engagement uh, in accounting fraud when he was in business uh, to um, really uh, point out that, uh, uh, talk about uh, as an entree, I should say, into the fine paid by Fiat Chrysler of $40 million dollars. Uh, Fiat Chrysler had a cookie jar, and when they uh, wanted vehicle sales to appear better than they were, they would dip into the cookie jar to inflate sales. And he correctly points out this is exactly what it is, channel stuffing. For those not aware of channel stuffing, uh, channel stuffing is when uh, on a day near the end of Q1, so Q1 um, – uh, you sell X amount of uh, product to a distributor or other third party. Uh, two days later in Q2, you buy back that product, usually at an uplift because you have to pay someone for the trouble. Nevertheless, um, you take that product back or you zero out that sale. And um, if uh, what Richard had uh, really was a, a way to hide that uh, sale from uh, the uh, internal audit function at his company so that they didn't see it, or even worse, as he notes, is that if support functions uh, are aware of it and turn a blind eye to it. So um, that it's an old, uh, honored technique. It is also illegal, and this is what um, Fiat Chrysler got in trouble for. Jay, if you'll think back uh, a few years back to the HP Hewlett-Packard FCPA enforcement action. This is one of the ways that uh, they created a pot of money to pay bribes, and it was advanced channel stuffing. And literally, uh, sale at the end of Q1, uh, purchase of product back in Q2 with an uplift. Actually, what they did was sale of product in Q1 to distributor one, distributor one, resell product in Q2 to distributor two, and on down the line, each time with an uplift. <clears throat> and then it eventually Hewlett-Packard bought back the product, also at an uplift, uh, but they didn't keep the money for themselves. They all put it into a pot of money to pay bribe. So it can be a way to create a pot of money to pay a bribe. It can be a fraud. It can be a way to make your accounting numbers. And uh, kind of kudos to Richards for uh, talking about that from his personal experience of how he engaged in it when he was in the corporate world. Yeah, I just wanted to add one more point that he makes that I found really interesting. He said that if you're in audit and compliance and it's around the end of the month, it's a real good time to walk the floor and see how many uh, people are getting last-minute orders out and looking at salespeople. So you really can tell a lot in terms of what's happening by your employees. And I'm sure if you have a speak-up culture, those folks who are on the floor and see and hear a lot would be able to give you some good information. Last article we have uh, comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance and Financial Regulation. It's from a group of our colleagues over at Deloitte, led by Robert Biscop, Krista Parsons, and Robert Land. And they are just thinking that, is it time to have a refresher course on board, board oversight? Uh, they refer to a case that I believe we've spoken to in the past, which is called Marshawn versus Barnhill. And it's about a company that made a single product, ice cream. And uh, if the uh, ice cream got um, 
if the ice cream w was uh, tainted and was not saleable anymore, they lost their only product. They would have to lay off their workforce. And basically what came down to this, that it was the responsibility of the board to be aware of whether or not there was any risk within this company. Uh, Robert and his team take a look at just refreshing us in terms of what things a board needs to be aware of in terms of an ethics and compliance and risk posture. And some of the things which are themes that we talk about is for the company's top leaders, does the board of director and executives set the tone for the rest of the company? Is there actual compliance expertise on those who serve with the board of directors? Has the board held executive or private sessions with compliance and control functions? And should prosecutors address whether those responsible for compliance have sufficient autonomy? There are um, a couple figures that uh, they look at in a study that uh, shows, unfortunately, that uh, there are not a lot of companies where your ethics and compliance people either participate in the board meetings or participate in the compliance audit functions. So it's a, it's a very uh, brisk article, but it just is a good reminder that when you're looking for the expertise on your board or you are going through the, uh, the year, that these are the types of risks that people should have their eyes open for. As Tom said earlier in the podcast, we have uh, the nominations for the next class in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, Tom already cast his vote for the Doobie Brothers. Anyone else that you think is meritorious of joining the hall? Well, uh, Whitney Houston is nominated posthumously, and I'm sure she will get in. Um, she was uh, really big and great uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, her rendition of the Star Spangled Banner in the, I believe, 1991 Super Bowl, although I may have that year wrong, was perhaps the greatest rendition of uh, Star Spangled Banner I've ever seen. Um, I would frankly put her in just for that. Um, obviously, we lost her way too early. Um, the groups that uh, I really hope make it include uh, Nine Inch Nails, Todd Rundgren, Kraftwerk, and uh, for those true rock and roll aficionados into the weeds, Detroit's MC5. But uh, the Dubes uh, are one of my favorite group. I always check them out. And uh, one of the things that the Hall of Fame has to uh, decide is uh, which uh, members of the group will uh, be a part of the uh, induction ceremony if they are um, still alive. No, not still alive. <laughs> uh, if the group gets in. Uh, so with the doobies, uh, it will include Tom Johnstone, lead guitarist, Patrick Simmons, guitarist, John McPhee, John Hartman, Mike Mosack, Skunk Baxter. Yes, Jeff Skunk Baxter was a part of the Doobie Brothers. Uh, Keith Knudsen, Kieran Porter, and Michael McDonald, although Michael was not part of the original iteration. Uh, he came on board after he played with um, um, uh, Steely Dan. So uh, vote early and vote often for the Doobie Brothers. You can vote as many times as you want, but you can only vote once daily. So uh, hopefully this will give you an excuse to revisit the Doobs. 
So I uh, synced up with some of the choices. My choices were uh, Pat Benatar, who was also very big in the 80s, uh, Dave Matthews Band, Depeche Mode, uh, the Doobie Brothers, uh, Nine Inch Nails were together on Trent Reznor. And uh, I don't know, lately, the last couple of years, I've just been a real uh, T-Rex fan. I just cannot get over Benga Gong and... Uh, I think that there's there's something there that is worthy of recognition. So um, now we get to your favorite time of the podcast, because in a few hours, game four of the American League Championship Series will begin, and your hometown Astros are up two to one. We are. Uh, Zach Grinke takes the mound in Yankee Stadium. Uh, Garrett Cole pitched just a masterful performance. So um, if you're an Astros lover, Yankee hater, or anyone else, we invite you to jump on board the Astros Express as we uh, continue our march towards uh, bringing the World Series championship trophy back to Houston. Uh, For those interested, uh, game one, Tuesday, uh, I will be in attendance when the uh, the Astros begin their uh, 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 fight with the the Washington Nationals. So... um, for those uh, who may not have uh, uh, listened in, I had a great five-part podcast series with Jay, of all people, this week, um, and it was sponsored by uh, Affiliated Monitors, and we took a look at uh, uh, ethical culture. So on Monday, we looked at what is an ethical culture, Tuesday, factors influencing ethical culture, Wednesday, the role of the CCO, uh, today it was assessing ethical culture, and on Friday, uh, the 18th, the role of ethical culture in an overall ethics and compliance program. Uh, posts on the FCPA compliance report, but also available on JD Supra, iTunes, Megaphone, YouTube, Spotify, and of course, the Compliance Podcast Network. Jay, you want to uh, tell them about our next episode of Popcorn and Compliance? Yeah, so we've been on the sidelines a little bit, and Tom and I got that hankering to get together again. So we are going to have a series of episodes of popcorn and compliance uh, focused on the Star Trek feature films. So the first one that we're going to bring to the air is uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. Tom's going to talk about um, some compliance lessons. I'm going to give my usual Hollywood insiders view, and we're going to talk about where that lays in the uh, pantheon of the Star Trek universe. So it's going to be a lot of fun and that's going to post on this saturday october 19th 7 a.m central time so i think we've had a jam-packed uh half hour or so tom do you uh you probably need to start getting ready for that ball game huh on behalf of tom fox the compliance evangelist and the biggest houston astros homer and myself mr monitor We would like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 176, for the week ending October 18th, 2019, the Let's Go to Doral edition. Thanks for listening, and we'll speak with you next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Check out the uh, great articles that we've referenced in this episode. Uh, They're all listed in the show notes. 
This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.